guys. I'm glad you're all here. Two announcements before we get started here. One is uh, Bible study, 1130 this morning. If you'd like to participate in that, uh, shoot me a text or your email and I will get you out the invitation to that. Second thing is, is for those of you who have uh, preschool kids or kindergarten kids, uh, there are bags uh, made up here as you exit through the narthex. There are bags on the pew sitting out there, which are kind of a proxy Sunday school for them uh, since we're not having Sunday school in person right now. Uh, so grab one of those on your way out. That's all the announcements I have. If you guys could stand up and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us confess our sins to God the Father. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. 
we pour out our souls to You because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again, and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of Your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of Your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles, our brokenness, our sins. You know that without Your mercy, we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of Your Son, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 15th chapter. Glory to You, O Lord. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated.
Epistle reading for this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Uh, some, of this, some of these verses are famous. Some of you will recognize these. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, big theme the past couple weeks uh, out of... um, Romans chapter 8 is new creation, is happening, it's coming, it's on its way. Jesus is going to return and restore everything. And also, there's suffering in between for, for Christians on the way to that new creation. And those themes have sort of been circling back and forth on each other. And uh, again, remember, uh, Paul emphasizes here, back in verse 17, which has kind of been a theme verse for the past few weeks, that you aren't slaves and you aren't debtors. You are instead children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness inside of you that you are God's children. And if you are children, this is verse 17, that means that you're heirs and you get everything. Everything that belongs to God, which is every square inch of the universe, comes to his children on the last day. They get it. Provided, verse 17 says, that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the new creation is there, but also this theme of suffering. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at how these two themes come together into one complete, that they actually don't think of it as, okay, new creation's coming, meanwhile there's suffering to be done, and we just got to kind of hang in there until new creation comes. That actually, in Christ, God is using his people's suffering to bring about new creation. That's going to be the theme of the verses this morning. One big, larger theme that brackets this, if I can show this to you real quick, Um, it's kind of the background noise to all of this new creation and suffering talk, is once again this reminder uh, in verse 17 and in verse uh, 29 from this morning that Jesus, this is very important, listen to this, and this is like kind of uh, going against default mode here, so you're going to tell, tell yourself this frequently. Jesus did not die on the cross to take you to heaven when you die. It's not mentioned anywhere here in this text and actually hardly anywhere in the New Testament. Jesus did not die on the cross primarily so that you don't feel guilty about your sins. Jesus did not die on the cross, certainly, so that your life would be good and smooth and happy from now on. Jesus died, in this text, why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead because God is creating a new people, a new family, in himself, younger siblings of Jesus. God wants there to be younger brothers and sisters of Jesus. He said, Paul says this twice in here, verse 17. Uh, verse, um, uh, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse uh, 15. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, as Christians. You have been adopted into God's family, and that means that you are, if you're children, verse 17, then you are heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. That means Jesus is Jesus gets everything. You get everything too because you are adopted into his family. He says this explicitly down in verse 29. So he wraps it up. He's talking about salvation. Look at the last line of verse 29. He says, salvation has happened in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So that Jesus could be the older brother and sister to me and you. This is why Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Because he wants to create this new people. The goal is new creation. 
and this new renewed people of God in Jesus Christ. Okay. So let's talk about how suffering fits into that because that's been kind of the theme that's been weaving out uh, in and out of Romans chapter 8. And uh, now we're going to get to where Paul brings those together. Those two streams come together in, this, in these verses. There's two things I want to do here. First of all, I want to talk about who this is for because it's extremely important. And then I'm going to talk about um, what does it mean. The, the key phrase in this text, which a lot of you guys know this, is all things work together for good. Now, who's that for? And then what does that mean? What does that look like? So first of all, uh, who is that for? It's for those of you who are Christians. That's who it's for. If you're not a Christian, your suffering is going to be random. It's going to be meaningless. It's just going to be pain for pain's sake or loneliness for loneliness or boredom for boredom's sake. If you are a Christian, though, it has meaning, which we'll get to in a minute. But first of all, let me point out that he says this. He talks about how this is for Christians, and he does it in three different ways. So first of all, look at verse 28. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love God, that's, that's Israel language. I, I know it sounds like he's saying, it might sound like he's saying, hey, you have to love me, and if you don't love me, this isn't going to work for you. He's not saying that. He's saying that you guys are my lovers. You are God lovers. That's what it actually says in, in Romans 8, 28. This is for God lovers. Well, this is Israel language. Israel was, that was their identity, was we are the God lovers. Most important text in the, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. Uh, for Jews of Jesus' day, for Jews of today, for Jews a thousand years before Jesus too, is almost certainly the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's God's identity. Over against all the polytheistic religions of Moses' day, this is, this is one of the things, this is Judaism's innovation, is that there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and here's, here's who you are, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's, that's our relationship, God says to the people of Israel. I'm the one and only God, and you are my lovers. So when Paul says, this is for those who love God, he's, it's an identity word. He's saying, you are the God lovers, this is for you. Okay, now, this is going to be emphasized even more because he's going to, like, there's two other words left, and these are going to be identity words as well. Look at verse 28, still in verse 28, last line. For those who are called according to his purpose, you are the called ones. First of all, you're God lovers. That's who you are. Second of all, you're the called ones. Now, this word called, again, it sounds like the way that we use the word called is like God calls us, hey, so-and-so, you should believe in me. He's kind of over there. And then you are confronted with a choice. Are you going to believe in God or not? That's actually not the way the Bible uses the word called. The Bible uses the word called to mean that's your identity. You've been called and so you belong to me. Let me give you an example. Really. So first of all, Paul talks like this in 1 Corinthians 1. Two examples, actually, now that this one's coming to mind. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, you know, the Jews seek a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And for those who are called... That's the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. What does he mean, those who are called? Not just generically, those who've heard the gospel, but those of you who believe in Jesus, and the way that Paul talks about people who believe in Jesus, is those who are called. In other words, when God calls you this way, it puts you into this relationship. It becomes your identity. You are the called ones. Here's a good example from um, Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, Fear not, God says to Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. See, this isn't just like, hey, I called you. 
hey, buddy, this is, I'm calling you, and when I call you, it's a relationship builder. I call you by name in your mind. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Now, it's interesting, from a suffering here in Romans 8, that in Isaiah 43, he instantly goes to suffering. I've called you by name, you are mine, and so now you know when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and the rivers won't overflow you, and when you pass through the fire, you won't be burned. That flows out of idea. That, that ability to go through suffering and understand the true meaning of it and to come through it stronger and better relies on who you are in Jesus Christ. You are the called one. We're on that in just a second because we've got one more term. Again, itself, an identity term. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You are the foreknown ones. Now, what does that mean? Foreknow means to know way back when. To know before you were born. To know before the foundation of the world. Now, it does not say that God foreknew that you were going to be his child. It's God foreknew you. It's not a knowledge. It's not like an information word. I foreknew that you were going to believe in me. It's I foreknew you personally. It's less like I know how algebra works and more like I know so-and-so and they're my friend. It's a relationship word. I foreknew you. You are the ones that God knows. And you're the ones, th those of you who are Christians, you are the ones that God has known from eternity. Let me give you a great example of this. This is from Jeremiah. God is, right at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, God's calling Jeremiah, and he says this to him in verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I had a relationship with you before I even made you in your mom's womb. That's how strong the covenant relationship between God and his people is. It's almost eternal. It's almost pre-us. It's pre-your conception and your birth. God knows us. And this is uh, before you were, this is parallel lines here in Hebrew. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I knew you, and that means that you were mine. You belong to me. It's kind of like the Isaiah uh, 43 text, isn't it? I knew you, and you belong to me. I called you, and you were mine. This is all identity words. This is who you are. You are the God lovers. You are the called ones. You are the ones foreknown by God. Now, why is this important? Why is it important to talk about this? before we talk about suffering. This is the answer. I alluded to this just a second ago. The way that you deal, that you and I deal with suffering completely relies on your identity, on what you believe about yourself and what you hope in and what you put your dreams in and what you center your life around. That's your identity is how you'll deal with suffering. If you have made your identity career promotion, when you don't get the job promotion, you'll be crushed. If you've made your identity good health, and there are people who do this, you know, you've heard, you've heard the phrase, if you, don't, if you don't have health, you don't have anything. That's actually not true biblically. It's possible to not have health and have the whole world. But if you make your good health your identity, when you lose that health, you'll be crushed. If you make your family your identity, again, these are all good things, right? Like if you make your family your identity, when you are abandoned by a spouse or when you lose a loved one, You'll be crushed. You, don't know how, you won't have any way to, I, to, to deal with that. Your, your universe will be destroyed. This, by, by the way, this is why Paul starts off with God lovers. Because what you love, the thing that you love, is the best indicator of what your identity is. The thing that you invest your emotions in, and your energy, and your thoughts, and your time, that's your identity. That's who you are. And if you lose that, you'll be crushed. And what Paul wants us to do is to find our identity in Christ, and then you'll never be crushed. 
Because honestly, you're not always going to get the job promotion. The money that you have, you'll eventually lose some of it. The good health that you have, definitely you'll lose some of it. Family and friends will betray you. But if your identity is, I'm a God lover, you'll never lose that. You will never, ever be outside of Jesus Christ. That can't, that's indestructible. You can't lose that. And if you suffer and your identity is, I'm in Christ, you'll be able to suffer with the meaning that he's going to talk about in just a second. It's all about your identity. It's all about your identity. If your identity is in Jesus Christ, what I'm about to say next is going to make sense to you. And if your identity is not in Jesus Christ, if it's in something else, this is going to sound like stupid nonsense, maybe even cruel, which leads us to the second thing is, uh, what's he saying here about suffering? What does it mean that all things work together for good? And let me give a little caveat real quick here. This is a little, what I want you to think of this as is preventative medicine. I want you to get what we're about to talk about in your heart and in your mind because if you come to me and your spouse has just left you, I'm not going to say to you, hey, you know what, all things work together for good, so cheer up. That, that would actually be completely cruel of me. And, and, and it wouldn't actually get at the heart of the problem either. So what we need to do is before the bad times hit, before you lose your health or your money or your friends or whatever it is that you're going to eventually lose someday, get this in your heart and your mind that that loss, that suffering is working together symbiotically with all the other things going on in your life for good. Okay, so what does he mean for good? We, we, it's hard for us because, like for me, good is, I don't want to be rich. You know, I don't want to be famous, but good is like, I'm comfortable. People respect me. I've got my health, especially my kids have their health. This is how I identify good, and all those things are definitely good, right? But that's not how God identifies good in this text. See, the temptation with those things is to place our identity in those things, and God is going to give us a good that's more solid, that's more sure, that all the other goods can be there and enjoyed, but if they're gone, it doesn't crush us. There's two things that he says in this text are our good. All things, all of our suffering works together for our good. Two different things that this means. So the first one is this. Look at verse, uh, let's do 28 again, and we'll read through verse 29. We know, that all, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for because, and he's about to tell you, all things work together for good because, and he's about to define what that is, because uh, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All things work together for good because God is working out everything to conform us to the image of Jesus. That's the ultimate good. Everything else is sub-goods. They're good, but they're not the primary good. The primary good is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus. And if Jesus is the suffering God, if Jesus' primary identity before the world is the crucified one, us being conformed to that is going to be suffering as well. Now, Again, preventative medicine, I'm not saying that your suffering isn't suffering. The point this morning is like when you're suffering, hey, chin up, it's not that bad. That's not true. Suffering is suffering. Evil is evil. Bad is bad. But what I am saying is that there is some mysterious purpose where God is using our suffering to craft us into a new creation people, to make us look more and more like Jesus, to make us look like the crucified and resurrected one, which means that we're going to be suffering and we're going to be glorious here on this earth even, before the new creation. Now, how does this work? I'm going to give you some examples. And admittedly, they are weak and do not get at the heart of your pain. All right, They're just examples. These will, these will work best for those of you for whom everything's kind of easy right now. For those of you who are struggling, 
and I know that some of you are, so it's going to sound a little shallow and flippant. But I just kind of want you to hang with me. I'm trying to give us some like mental hooks to hang these notions on, okay? Example number one. How does suffering work towards good? I'm just going to argue now that it's possible. The answer, here's, here's an example, not the answer, an example is this. So Angela makes this, we just had this two nights ago. Angela makes, I think Jamie gave us this recipe. Um, Angela makes this uh, like uh, uh, chicken marinade, and it's really good. Like she, mar- she marinates chicken in this marinade, and then we grill it, and it's really delicious. But when she's making it, like you can't go in the kitchen because it involves fish sauce. Is that the one? It involves fish sauce, and it just stinks like crazy. If, 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 in the moment of smelling the fish sauce, you're like, this is going to be disgusting. I'm going to have to like put on my brave husband face and be like, yeah, this is good. And it actually ends up being delicious. So, you ever, so sometimes we'll make gumbo, and have you ever like just taken like, you would never do it with even like a, a half teaspoon, put some, like some cayenne pepper by itself on, in your mouth? Like you don't want to do that because it's painful. And so why, what good is cayenne pepper? It just burns. Actually, though, in gumbo, when the whole thing is mixed together, it works together for something delicious. Right? Just because something is painful, because something is bad, doesn't mean it's inherently meaningless. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that cayenne pepper doesn't burn. I'm not saying that fish sauce doesn't stink. I'm not saying that the losses that you've experienced are just nothing. Don't worry about it. Just hang in there. It'll be bad. I'm not, they're, they're horrible and they're bad, but it's possible that they do have meaning. It's possible that God is using them for, for good. Okay, now what if, you're, what if your pain, what if your suffering is less cayenne pepper and fish sauce? And maybe it's more just like a sort of like a low-level chronic background noise in your life. Maybe it's like this loneliness that you've experienced for years and you just can't shake. Maybe it's like, maybe it's like a chronic pain, you know, like chronic back pain is like this. It just doesn't go away. How can that be good? Again, I'm not arguing that it's good. How can it work towards good? That's, a, that's probably the, the more biblical way to say it. All right, so here's an example. Again, if this is you, shallow, but hold on to it in your head. Have you ever heard, like, have you ever gone to the symphony and, like, watched the trombones play? Like, it's got to be super boring. Because typically speaking, you know, I mean, it's a low register instrument, you know, and it's just like, dun, 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 like, over and over. Like, how good do you have to be at the trombone to play in the symphony, you know? I mean, every once in a while, you know, like, Sibelius' Seventh Symphony, you'll get something where the trombone has, like, this better, more virtu- virtuosic part. But typically speaking, trombones are boring. If, I, if, you know, if you brought a trombonist from just your average sort of symphony and had him playing here, you would like be, after like two or three minutes, you'd be like, this is the most boring thing. This dude's playing the same three notes over and over and over. But if you could join that up with the rest of the symphony, you would say, oh, that makes sense. I can see how that's a part of that. I can see how the composer is working together that trom- boring trombone part, that low-level nonsense trombone part into this beautiful symphony. Is it not possible that the Creator God is doing this as well? That the Creator God is using our pain as a part of this symphony that He's writing? Which in the moment, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that it's okay and like, just put a smile on your face. In the moment, it's bad and it's like monotonous and it has you down. But in the scope of the whole picture, maybe you are the trombonist in this symphony that God is writing. Third thing. Third example, 
isn't this how we like our stories? God is nothing if not a fantastic storyteller. Like, and I don't mean like story fiction. I mean like the story, the story of the universe. Do we not, isn't there not something in our hearts that likes the drama? I'm not saying your own drama. I mean in another story. You know, if your, baseball te- if your favorite baseball team won 162 games every year and the other team never scored any runs, I know that you might think, oh, I would like that, but you wouldn't. It would just get boring to you. The excitement of a sporting event is the excitement of Michael Jordan hitting a shot to come from behind at the, at the end of the game to win the game. If you read a novel, if you opened up a novel, or if you turned on, let's say, you turned on a movie and nothing ever bad happened, it was just people smiling and going about their business, eating delicious food and holding hands in the park and listening to jazz. And you just went about, that, that, you would turn the movie off. Because the only, thing that you would, the only thing that would make you say, this is a great movie, or this was a, that was a great game we saw, is if there were several comebacks in the game. If there were moments in the novel or in the movie where the good guy, it looked like he was going to lose, and then at the end, he pulled it out. That's the story that God is writing. It looks like God himself loses. In, in the story, right in the middle of the story, God dies. He, he gets killed by the bad guys. And he turns it around, and that's the story that we like. That's the story that grips us. That's the story that actually turns us on. That's the story that elicits glory from us. If we are united to Jesus Christ, that's going to be our story too. Which This brings me to my second thing. Suffering conforms us to the image of God, but suffering also, second thing Paul says, it works together for good because suffering brings glory. Look at the very last verse here. Those whom he predestined, that's you guys, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now he's basically just saying, this is a guarantee. Over the course of your life, you're going to think, I've lost this one. But it's not true. If you've been foreknown, you've been predestined. If you've been predestined, you've been called. If you've been called, you've been justified. You've been justified, guaranteed, you will be glorified. You will be glorified. Now what does that mean? What is glory? Glory is the one thing, glory is the thing that, God's glory is his magnificence. It's the thing that pulls out of our soul's praise. That says you are the glorious one. Only God is worthy of glory in the Bible. Only God is worthy of praise. Now we're used to this. We're used to the notion that God is the good guy in the story. That the hero of the story is the God who dies and comes back to life and saves the whole world. Now here's, check this out. Here's what Paul's saying. He's not just saying, your suffering, if the suffering of God leads to God's glory, and you are in God in Jesus Christ, then your suffering also leads to God's glory. That's true, but more than that, verse 29, you also will be glorified. You also will receive that glory too. Here's what he's saying. We're used to the notion that God is the good guy in the story, that God is the hero of the story. Here's what Paul is saying. Your suffering in Jesus Christ makes you the hero of the story. Your suffering in Jesus Christ is the way that Jesus Christ himself exists in this world as the suffering God. When you suffer in the name of Jesus, you get glory. You are the one who at the end of the meal, people are like, that was an incredibly complex and delicious dish. Did you make that? That's mind-blowing. I didn't know you could cook like that. You are the one who at the end of the game, people are crowding around to be like, that was an amazing shot. I can't believe you took that shot. It's a great shot. You are the one who, at the end of the story, is the one who you know, flies out of the sky and rescues the plane for falling. That's from falling and saves everybody's life inside the plane. 
you are the Superman in the story because in Jesus Christ, your suffering has been joined to his. And this means that you'll be conformed to the image of Jesus, which means that Jesus' glory is your glory. And because of your suffering in Jesus Christ, you are the heroes of the story. Okay, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would allow us to see our suffering in this light, see it through our identity as your children and as ways that you're working out your glory and by extension through you, our glory here in this creation. And we pray that you would bring about new creation quickly and restore this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand and then we'll continue in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would uh, forgive me and cure me of my uh, short-sighted, myopic thinking, this uh, thinking that my suffering is happening in a vacuum and that it's all that exists and that it means that I've been forgotten or that I'm a loser or that you've abandoned me. Help me to see it by the power of your grace, help me to see it in this great story that you're writing as a part of the dramatic story, as a part of this magnificent symphony to your praise, as a part of this recipe of new creation that you're building in us. Forgive me for not seeing it that way and help me by the power of your Holy Spirit to see my suffering as joined to your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be with those who are suffering. And as I was preaching this morning, I was looking out and I could see the faces of people who I know have specific sufferings in their hearts and the faces of people who are comfortable right now but know that the boom will drop eventually, that, that bad times will come. And I pray that you would be with each one of us when we go through this. Turn our hearts and mind to you. But also, I don't, I, I don't want to be remiss to pray that you would alleviate our suffering for your own glory, that you would take away our grief, that you would take away our pain, and that you would uh, give us confidence and assurance that you are in charge and in love with us. I pray, again, I pray uh, with the family, I pray for the family of Mardell Wilson, whose uh, brother Craig passed away last week. Continue to give them comfort and hope. I pray that you would be with the family of Ron Fry, Jared's uncle, who passed away yesterday and that you would give them hope and comfort in your resurrection as well. I also want to praise you uh, for the good health that you've been giving Rick and uh, the renewal in his body that we did not think would be there several days ago, but that somehow, miraculously, you are restoring him to health and that you would continue to do so. We give you the praise for that. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray together all these things only. We, we can only talk to you because you have brought us into your presence inside your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 
And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.